So I uh, just want to say Happy New Year. Glad you're here this morning. And just to do a quick survey, so how many people make New Year's resolutions? Nobody wants to admit it out loud, I know. But really the studies show that about 80, or not, not 80, I forget the number. It's like the majority of people make resolutions, but the vast majority also don't fulfill those resolutions. I think it's like 60 or 70 people, 70% of people make resolutions, a big number. For those of you that make them and won't admit it, how many have already broken their resolution? <laughs> I mean, the reality is, I mean, you think about this, uh, this the reality is, is that we are at a point in life where, whether, whether you even consider New Year's Day a thing or not, like, I mean, really, when you stop and think about it, yesterday is not much different than today, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot different except flipping the page on a calendar and it it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything except that we have imposed some meaning on it. And, and so whether you're a person who makes resolutions or not, whether you're a person that considers the new year a thing or not, a reason to, to, to really shape yourself or to think about a new year and a new you, whether you're, whether you're that person or not, the reality is, is that we live in a culture that is driven by this idea. Looking back and thinking about what was with hopes of what will be, in the, in the year to come, and always with a great hope of better things to come. Nobody's looking forward thinking, oh, man, I hope this is a terrible year, right? We don't, we don't do that. In reality, it's very difficult not to get caught up in the, in, the whole, in the whole looking back and hoping for better things in the future. I mean, the, the culture we live in, the world we live in is given to that. It is a very natural time. I mean, when you think about it, it's a very natural time. At the turn of a calendar, at the start of a new year, it's a, it's a very natural time to set some goals for yourself, to, to make some plans, to, to put forth some expectations of what you plan to achieve in the, in the time to come. It's, it's a very natural time to think about who you are and who you want to become. It does kind of make sense. It's very difficult not to go there, but the reality is that a lot of us... We'll make those resolutions, we'll make those plans, we'll set to achieve them. In fact, I saw this morning, I, I, I realized a resolution I've made for myself was to finish my retirement stuff. I've been talking to Nicole about changing my retirement stuff over out of an old 401k that is just sitting there probably losing money. And I've resolved, this year I'm going to get it done. But I've been planning to do it for like a year and a half. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll talk to you this year about that. But it's for this reason, it's for this very natural time of year to, to remind ourselves or to make plans to set goals. It's, very, it, it's, it's why, whether you are a New Year's resolution person or not, whether you're a person who considers yesterday any different than today or not, every year we come and the first, two, well, first, first sermon or two of the year, I always kind of build out and just plan to give kind of vision, overarching vision of our church, who we at the way want to be, who we long and desire to be, present a picture of what our highest ideals are to encourage us, to, to embolden us even, to pursue that. Now that, that, that idea that, that we put forward every year as part of our main vision, the main mission of our church is to be a people who live 
worship. Now, we're not talking about just gather and sing a few songs. We're talking about a people who are so devoted to, so adoring of, so, so desirous of the, the glory of our God that we give our lives, everything we do and everything we say to the pursuit of his glory, to make Jesus famous. And to do that in such a way, to worship that way, in such a way, to, to live that worship so loudly that, that the world around us can't help but see the glory of God that some of them might come and worship in this life with us. To worship and lead others to worship. That is the desire, the, 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 the heartbeat of this church, to, to live as a result of the gospel, that, that we would glorify our God such that others would see his glory and confess his glory with us. And we do that every year, and, and this year's no different. Some years we have to step out of a series that we're in to kind of do that. But, but this year, working in Luke, we're at a very natural point, just as natural as it is to make plans and goals around a new year. We're at a very natural point, a transition in the life of Christ that I don't, I don't even have to work hard to make it happen. Like Luke is doing this for us. And really, that's the way it should be anyway. Luke chapter 9 really has been a, 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 a chapter of transitions. We've seen the transition of Jesus from being the primary worker of miracles to being the primary teacher to beginning to engage and draw his apostles in and giving them power and them authority to begin to teach and to work miracles. We see another transition in play, the, the identity of Jesus. Luke had been working diligently all nine chapters to demonstrate who Jesus was. And in chapter 9, we see this transition begin to take place that Jesus is no longer just allowing his followers to agree with what other people say, but he is beginning to question them, who do you say that I am? Like, who do you think I am? Am I just a prophet to you? Am I just a powerful miracle worker? Who do you say I am? And he doesn't leave them any room for question because on top of a mountain, he reveals his glory, affirming their confession. Like, they confess, you are the Christ, you are the one from God, come to save us. They, they confirm that, they, they confess that. And then he confirms it by walking onto the top of this mountain and allowing the glory that, that is truly his to shine through him so that some of his followers can see it. But it didn't stop at his transfiguration because in that moment, God spoke out of heaven. His voice was heard in the world, confessing, confirming that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is God in flesh. He wouldn't allow the, his followers any longer to, to walk under some assumption that he was someone other than the, than, than the God who took on flesh to dwell with us. Another transition that we see in chapter 9. Luke is showing us that Jesus didn't come to be a king in the way that other kings come to be kings. He didn't come to take Rome so that he could establish a greater Israel. He didn't come to rise up and take power so that he could defeat a people. He came to express a power that was truly already his, that he might take death and defeat it, that he might take sin and nail it to a cross that God could forgive. See, in this chapter, Jesus begins to prophesy and tell his followers that they, he is not he is not going to pursue the route of power that so many other leaders, so many other kings would. 
But he is going to be the suffering servant that Isaiah had prophesied so many hundreds of years before. That he was, going to ad- he was going to die to achieve his purpose. And we see this not only in his prophecies. Twice he's prophesied it to this point. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But on that Mount of Transfiguration, the topic of conversation between him, Moses, and Elijah. And just imagine this, that Moses and Elijah are getting to talk to Jesus, the, 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 the founder and perfecter of our faith. That they are getting to talk to him about the work that he come to do. And as, it is, as, as it's told us, what they're talking about, it says that he is talking to them about his exodus. About the work that he's about to do to provide a, a path of hope and promise. This is a book, this is a chapter, if you will, a chapter of transitions. And in this verse, the verses that we study today, there is further transition. There is a moment in which Jesus is going to transition from his work in Galilee to the work that he has come to do for eternity. And we see that, and then we see in the midst of that a call, an expectation, if you will, to be a people who will follow him no matter what the cost. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Let me just say this before we get into this. This is extra. It's not in my notes. It's just, a, just let me say something. This is a sermon. I mean, the reality is you're here on New Year's morning, right? I get that for many of you, that this is not something that you, uh, I'm not having to fight you in this, right? Like the, the, the things that I'm going to say today are a desire in your heart. And so I want, to, I want you to receive this. As, 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 as an encouragement to really give your life wholly over, fully over, to learn and to, to do a little introspection and, and look at your heart in such a way that, that every one of us, even the most holy among us, still have places that we need to put aside for the glory of Christ. As we talk about being a people who would worship him in all of life, I know that some of you are striving for that, so be encouraged by this. Be encouraged to continue that pursuit. But for some of you, the reality is you're here this morning, maybe simply because it's New Year's morning, and you've made a resolution. And again, I want this to be encouragement, but I I want this to, to be something that confronts you in your heart and the things that you have allowed to take the place of preeminence in your life in such a way that, that you are not offended by me but in such a way that you are encouraged that this is what your Christ has called you to. And then maybe there's some of you that are sitting in this room that have pretended to be something you're not, who are following some religious practice, who are, who are acting as if you're a Christian, but you're not truly following. I would plead with you to let this arrest you in your sinful state that, you might, that today, today might be the day that you would resolve to trust and follow Jesus no matter what the cost. There's no better time than now, no better day than today. Let me plead with you to receive this in this way. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. 
It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's a crazy reaction, right? (laughs) Well, let's just burn them up. Let's let's be done with them. But he turned and rebuked them. So just in case you're ever wondering, should you call fire down on someone, remember this verse. He turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the father, leave, leave the dead to bury, the dead, bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, in one sense, this passage is is not really telling us anything new. Jesus was always heading to Jerusalem. Even when he wasn't going to Jerusalem, even when he wasn't on the way there, he was heading to Jerusalem. Even when he was heading out of Jerusalem, when he, was, when he was earlier in his public ministry, even when he was heading out of Judea and he was heading into Galilee, the northern kingdom, even when he was, or the northern uh, region of Israel, even when he was walking away, he was heading to Jerusalem. There was an appointment that had been made for him before the foundation of the world that it was to take place in Jerusalem. So in a sense, God, or Jesus, I'm sorry, Jesus was always headed to Jerusalem. But there's a real sense in the timeline of his life that his ministry was taking place in Galilee, and when the time came, when when the proper time arrived, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. There's two things I want to call out about this before we go any further. First is the purpose that he turned his face toward Jerusalem. You see it there in verse 51. He says that when the, when the day drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What was he going to do? He was going to, um, let me turn off these notifications, otherwise all you people who tweet, because I like to know when you're tweeting about me. Just kidding. The thing is, at first, the first thing is, he's going there to be taken up. That's the purpose for which he's going. Now, some commentators, they talk about this as if he is being taken up and and raised up on the cross. And their whole focus in this phrase is his work on the cross. And I don't think it excludes that. But I think it's bigger than that. And the reason for that is, is... Not my own idea, but, but other commentators uh, somehow I think have got a, a better take on this. They look at the word taken up in the original language. They look at it and they're like, hey, that word is only used one time in, in, in that form. That word is only used one time in all of scripture. It happens to be here. But in a couple of other places, in, in, in another form, two other times in scripture, it is used to refer to, the, to, to Christ specifically. And it doesn't refer to his cross. It refers to his ascension Back to heaven. So his, his cross is in view. 
But to simply look at this as if Jesus is going to Jerusalem simply to die misses the big picture of what Jesus was really going to Jerusalem to accomplish. Jesus did go to Jerusalem. Jesus was headed to Jerusalem so that he could die on a cross. But he died on a cross so that he could rise. And he rose so that he could ascend. You see, the reality is this, is that when you put this in context of the whole chapter, when you see the thread that runs through Jesus' prophecy that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified, he does that twice. And when you tie this together with that thread that happens on the top of the mountain where Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus, what we begin to see is Jesus didn't simply go to die. He went to die and rise and ascend because his work is a greater exodus. Jesus is providing a path of hope and promise to an eternal promised land. That is what Jesus did in Jerusalem. And the gospel is that, yes, Jesus died and rose and ascended. And now because he hit every one of those points and he himself walked into the eternal presence as a risen man into the eternal presence of God, because he was able to do that in faith, we are made able to do that as well. Our hope in dying as Christians, as we face the, the difficulties of this life, our hope in death is not to enter into some eternal fog or some eternal dream. Our final hope is that we will live in the eternal land promised by our God that is flowing with milk and honey, where death reigns no more, where sin has been de- uh, abolished, where, where, where pain and suffering and tears have been wiped away. Jesus accomplishes the exodus for us so that we can follow him. So that we ourselves, and had he failed at any point, what hope would we have of living eternally in the presence of our creator? You see, it's too small of a view to simply think that he was being taken up and put on a cross. He was being taken up that he could stand in the presence of his Father, so that one day you and I would be able to stand in the presence of our Creator who sent our Savior, who calls us to be his own. So we have to see that. You have to understand that. This is what he has done for you. This is the appointment. This was the purpose for which he set his face. But the second thing I want you to see the second thing I want you to see is that, that this needs to be pointed out because if we read this, he set his face towards Jerusalem. It, it makes us think, oh, he's just, he's just turned a direction. Like he just changed direction. Like before he was facing north and now he's facing south. That's a misunderstanding of, of the original context and the original language. The original language demonstrates that this is a resolute decision. In a sense, Jesus made a resolution to go to Jerusalem. Again, this is not something new. He was always headed to Jerusalem. He was always going there. This wasn't some plan he devised along the way. This isn't a crossroads moment where he said, oh, I can go left or I can go right. I think I'll go ahead and go right. He was always headed down this road, but in the timeline of his life, in the physical moments of his daily walking, there came this time in which he made a resolution to go and do the very thing that he had been sent to do. I mean, this is not like our New Year's resolutions. 
I, I saw an article in Forbes, I think it was from like 2013. This article in Forbes highlights the fact that 8% of people who make, the, the vast majority of Americans make New Year's resolutions. Even if you didn't raise your hands earlier, you probably have made resolutions. And that's okay, we don't, we're not going to fault you for that. Maybe you didn't, I'm not trying to, well, let's not get into that. Anyway, if you're lying to me, that's on you. I won't call fire down from heaven, let's just say it that way. How's that? <clears throat> but here's the thing, 8% of the people, the vast majority of Americans, 8% of them will actually come to the place where they actually fulfill that resolution. And, and in the article, the author highlights that the reason that experts have determined that so many of us fail at actually a, a, accomplishing what we resolve to do is because we have so many competing priorities. On the other hand, there's Jesus who resolved to do it and then who accomplishes it. The reality is Jesus has one overarching, one guiding priority that would not be undermined by any other. If another priority came into, came, it came even close. I mean, it just wouldn't even happen. And this is why the temptations and schemes of the devil when he was in the desert after his baptism being tempted, that's why the schemes and temptations of the devil had no, no, no they, didn't even get, they didn't even build a desire for him to be able to, to even accomplish them because his, his priority was so set. It's why the rejection he faced in his hometown didn't discourage Jesus from doing what he was sent to do. It's why Jesus had one, pri that, see, he had one priority that rose above everything else. This is why when, when he faced these times and, and, and troubles, he didn't, he didn't turn away. But his priority was not getting to Jerusalem. His priority was not the cross. His priority was doing the will of his father. He went to the cross because his father willed it. He went to Jerusalem and was resolved to go to Jerusalem because his father willed it. You see, his father's will was the defining priority that set every other action, set every other priority, set every other determination about his life. This overarching, uh, uh, foundational, I mean, it's a surrounding, it's, a, it, it's all over him. It's, it's the thing that leads him, it's the thing that he stands on, it's the thing that motivates him, it's the thing that he desires, his father's will. Another way we could say it is his father's glory. Jesus so prioritized, so desired his Father's will to be accomplished that there was nothing that was going to take place in his life that was going to dissuade it or dissuade him from accomplishing it. And here's the thing. This is why we need to get this. Because he didn't just set this example for us. He calls us to follow him in it. He calls us to do this exact same thing. And, and we'll see it We'll see it in the rest of this passage, but, but this is, again, tied to a context where Luke has already been establishing this thought and this thread. You can look back up in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26, where he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, he's saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me to walk into death, to, to willingly walk into a self-denial, a, a death to self, that we would be following Jesus. For whoever, he goes on, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. So here we are standing at this moment where so many people are thinking about how they'll face this new year. Church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me plead with you to, to live, to determine, to resolve today to follow Christ and to desire the thing he desires most of all, to long for the glory and the will of God the Father to be accomplished. And the point I'm making is this. It's the point of the sermon. It's what I hope is ringing in your ears when you leave, when you wake up in the morning and when you start this new year in a new week. There is no greater priority that comes at greater cost with the promise of a greater reward than following Jesus. Let me say it again. There is no greater priority that comes at greater cost with the promise of a greater reward than following Jesus. The cost was him coming and facing Jerusalem. And the cross that was waiting for him at Jerusalem. The cost we feel that, 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 that inhabits our life is the denial of self, the daily taking up of our own cross, that we might go after him, that we might prioritize our life like him. But the promise of great reward is that in glory we will stand by the glorious one who says you can be with me forever and ever Welcome into my rest. This brings us to the question that really shapes the sermon and the way we're going to deal with the rest of these verses. How about you? What aren't you willing to give up in order to gain Jesus? What aren't you willing to walk away from in order that you can follow Jesus? What are the priorities of your life that are preventing you from following Jesus? The truth is we all have these, these priorities that compete for our attention, for our affection, they, they make promises in, in their lives, but they make promises that they'll give us joy and happiness, but they're empty and powerless to actually give them to us. And so, so when it fails, we plead, or we, we run onto another one and we find some other priority. But I think in this text, we see some of these priorities. I don't think it's an exhaustive list, but I think we see some of these priorities played out. Prejudice is the first I would point to in verses 52 through 53. 
Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's already been in Samaria. We know the woman at the well happened earlier in his ministry, probably a year previous. He saved a woman in a village full of people that were Samaritans. So he's already been in Samaria, but now here he is going the other direction, heading from Galilee to Judea, to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans hear that he's coming. Those that he sent ahead of him go ahead of him, and they say, hey, Jesus is coming. And you know they said he's coming. And and you know the stories had spread about who he is. I mean, they dropped his name. You know they did. Hey, we're here. We're, we're with Jesus. Give us a place to stay. And the expectation in that day would have been that they, oh, yeah, man, we'll give you a place to stay. But especially because of this man, Jesus, this miracle worker, this teacher of great authority, this man who had seen fit to walk through Samaria before and save a whole village. No. It is so sad their prejudice got in the way of the meeting Jesus. Because of the Samaritans' hatred for the Jews, because of their disagreement about, about doctrinal issues, about where one should worship, because of their, their ethnic or, or uh, 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 racial prejudice, because of their religious prejudice, they miss an opportunity to meet Jesus. I mean, this happens even today. We have some preconceived notion that we have determined it it has greater value. It's more important. It's it's better. It's a better way of living. Oh, man, the Bible, that's that's old stuff. That's antiquity. Like, that doesn't tell us how to live today. Jesus, he was talking about that time. That's not what he's, he's not saying that for today. Some preconceived notion that we have determined in our own knowledge and in our own experience and in our own view is greater somehow than what Jesus has done, what Jesus has taught, what Jesus has commanded. And it builds some prejudice within us. Some of us even sitting in this room possibly claiming that we're following Jesus while we're living in this same prejudice. Oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't like those Jewish folks. You know, they killed Jesus. I I don't have to like them. I don't like black folks. Yeah, Asians, boy, they, they get under my skin. White people are God's chosen people. Come on, we know that, right? That is absolutely ignorant. It's actually absolutely detestable to the God who came to bless all people, to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and yet people following Jesus every day are walking in this ignorant prejudice. But it's not just ethnic or racial prejudice. It's prejudice based around knowledge. Oh, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, But you know, more than I trust the Bible about our origins, I really believe science has got this one figured out. Rather than seeing that that the God of science is the one who created and spoke all things into existence, we'd prefer to listen to some man, some seven, ten thousand, or even possibly could be millions of years later. 
Like we finally got smart enough to figure out how we got created. People who are atheists and agnostic and assume that we can't possibly know this God who created us. Oh, well, you know, science, that's about observing things. God's word says that he is completely evident, that he is observable in the world that he created and has been since it was created. That no one will stand with an excuse. Why would we, why would we stand in this kind of prejudice? It's ignorance. I'm not, I'm not saying these people are stupid. I mean, many of them are very intelligent. Un, unknowing. Ignorance. The call to follow Jesus is a, is a call to live in obedience to his commands. This prejudice that says, oh, well, well I can live my life however I want I don't, uh, Jesus will take me, I'll be good enough at the end, and he'll take care of me when I get there. That's a prejudice. Based on our knowledge, based on our experience, based on, it, it is sad that people would devote themselves to some preconceived ideas about how they can live their lives, about the things that they can involve themselves in and not live holy as they've been commanded. It's sad that people would separate over ethnicity and race. The very God who created me is the very God who created you. And in prejudice, divide. It's so sad that these people who were so close to meeting Jesus missed him because of their prejudice. As ignorant as this is, I am so thankful that God's grace is sufficient for every ounce of this prejudice. We see that grace because when John and James, you know, had their epiphany and like, hey, let's burn them. Jesus rebuked them. So rather than becoming like James and John who, very, who, who picked up their own prejudice against those prejudices, May this move us to pray for these people. Pray for them and in grace and with truth rebuke them as we have opportunity. Following the example of our Christ. So prejudice keeps us from following Jesus. Acceptance keeps us from following Jesus. I think you see this in verses 54 through 56. James and John, they were so zealous that Jesus would be accepted. They were so zealous for Jesus' fame that they did something really stupid, really arrogant. And Jesus had already said, yeah, go, and, and if they don't receive you, you shake the dust off your feet. He never said destroy them. He just said let them, let them be, let them, let them have what they've decided to have, and that's on them. Don't misunderstand, he's about, to, he's about to talk about a time of judgment that's to come. In the verses we're going to deal with next week, he's going to talk about, woe to you, Corzin, woe to you. He's going to talk about the judgment that's to come. That judgment isn't now. The truth is, is that Jesus' life was never, his life here on earth was never motivated, never about acceptance. 
In fact, there's a thread that runs through his life from the time he was born to the time he was crucified that is a thread of rejection. At the inn, there was no room. In his hometown, they kicked him out. And even they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He casts the legion of demons out of the man and he lets him go into these pigs and the people that see it send him away. Now here he is in Samaria and simply because he's going to Jerusalem, he is rejected. This is the thread that runs through his life. And John picks this up in, in the opening verses of his gospel record. He says in John chapter 1 verse 11, he says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him, the very people that he came for, the very people that were looking for him and waiting on him for generations. They didn't receive him. They rejected him. And he hung on the cross because of this rejection. This was the reality of Jesus' life that he lived here on the earth. He did not come to be accepted by men. He came to be rejected so that he could die, so that then he could rise, and so that then he could ascend and pave our way to the promised land. This is what he came to do. Jesus wasn't worried about his acceptance on earth. And he wasn't worried about his acceptance on earth because he was so confident about his acceptance in heaven. The contrast of John chapter 1 verse 11, I think is seen in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 where Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Therefore, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The verses that you don't see that the therefore points to are verses that talk about him humbling himself to the point of death. Coming and being a servant. Coming and being a man who would be rejected and who would be killed. And he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus will be made much of, not because he was acceptable to mankind, but because he was acceptable to God the Father. And because he is acceptable to God the Father, he will be exalted and is being exalted by God the Father. Whether we accept him or not, he is the glorious king of heaven that sits on a throne that waits to come back and get us. That is who Jesus is. He doesn't need your acceptance. But boy, you need to accept him. Let me just free you of this weight that the world places on us in their weak theology. Jesus did not come to be accepted by man. He came so man could be accepted by God. Therefore, our lives do not need to be given to making Jesus acceptable. But isn't that what we're told in the church? You've got to figure out a way to make him taste good. You know, you've got to make him desirable to people. And we can live our lives following after him, not seeking his acceptance, but simply pointing at the man who is God in all that he did in all of his glory. And we can trust that the Father will exalt him. I don't know. I don't know that this is exactly what was going on in James and John's mind when they were so quick to bring judgment. But I think the root cause of our desire today to, to, to find Jesus, to, that people would find Jesus acceptable is because when they find Jesus acceptable, it makes us acceptable to them. 
I mean, this is a personal struggle of my own. It's something I wrestle with daily. A desire to be accepted. That people would like me, that people wouldn't reject me, that people could be my friend. I've, I've realized this so, so it goes so deep in my life. That I, I've realized that the depths of, of the twisted nature of it so real that I've recognized that I don't even care if people are, are honest about the acceptance of me just so long as you lie to my face about it. Like, just lie to me. Tell me you like me, and that's enough for me. Cuss me out behind my back. Disregard my feelings and, and my needs when I'm not around. And then we don't tell people about this Jesus because they're, that we're worried they won't accept us, that we will be rejected. Jesus didn't come to be accepted by men. He came so God could accept man. So we don't have to make him acceptable, nor do we have to find our acceptance from others any longer. Because in his acceptance before God, we become acceptable to God. And at the same time, we become detestable to the world. Jesus even made his followers ready for this. He prepared them for that moment. John 15, 18, John chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. Just before he's arrested, the night before he's arrested, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, because, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He was preparing them and now preparing us to no longer live for the acceptance of the world, but to stand under God's acceptance of him that we are now accepted in heaven. And that can't be taken away because it was worked by the power of God himself. You belong to him because he said you belong to him and because Jesus has made you acceptable to him. So follow him and don't chase after the acceptance of mankind. We don't have to pursue this acceptance because Christ has accepted us. Nor do we have to convince the world of Jesus' acceptability. This doesn't give us the permission to be jerks doesn't mean that we can walk around as if we don't care about people, that there's no compassion. The gospel actually moves us to compassion. But by many, we will be sent away, we will be rejected, while at the same time being fully acceptable in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise our God. So barriers to our following of Jesus, things that get in the way, priorities that prevent us from following him, prejudice, acceptance, comfort. You see this is in verses 57 through 58. Jesus moves on from this village in Samaria that rejected him. And along the way, someone comes up, someone with full of, full, I think the best of intentions and just full of desire. I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll do whatever you do. Jesus, ever the realist, won't let him live in this fantasy world. Birds of the air have nests, foxes have dens. I'm a homeless, poor guy that's about to go get crucified. You still going to follow me? Now, it's interesting, in these next three people, this, these, this man and the next two people, we don't know what they did. But what about you? 
What about me? Most of you have probably heard the, the famous quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he, he writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who understood the cost of discipleship, that's why he wrote the book, and he understood the weight of following Jesus in a fallen world, wrote many things that would challenge our thoughts today. I, there's several on the Version Live event. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share just one with you out of my notes for the sake of time. I want to share, to share with you the, the words that precede that famous quote. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is the dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then immediately following those words, he writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We have not been called to a life of comfort. Comfort's coming. Heaven's coming. The, 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 the exodus will lead us to the promised land flowing with milk and honey. All the pleasures and joy that we desire will be there without, without any kind of restriction. We will walk in utter joy, filled to the full, overflowing with joy for all of eternity. But today as we follow Christ, we are not called to live in comfort. We are called to pick up a cross and die to ourselves, to deny ourselves the joy this life might seemingly offer that we could follow Christ wherever he leads. This does not mean we should despise comfort or seek discomfort simply for the sake of being uncomfortable. This doesn't mean that we should look at someone's life and think, oh, they're not suffering enough, and let me cause a little suffering for them doesn't mean that we should just go cause trouble, that we have to experience more trouble. Simply, this is a call to suffer for the sake of the gospel, the sake of Christ. This is not suffering because you have some priority in your life. We all have priorities that we give things up for, right? We've got to make sure our kids are at every practice and they're involved in every activity and then we talk about how busy we are. We don't have time to read the Bible. We don't have time to be at church. We don't have time to be engaged with the, the community of believers. Oh, you'll give up all kinds of things to make sure your kids are idolized in that way. All the whole time, sacrificing the responsibility of following the God who saved you. Again, this doesn't mean your kids can't be involved in activities. They can't be prioritized over the God who's called you to discomfort for the glory of his name. Truth is, to follow Christ, there's enough discomfort that will come on its own. If you are living how he has called you to live, you don't need to create it for yourself. But when that discomfort comes, to follow Christ is to step into that discomfort and own it because through it, he is going to shape you. He is going to sanctify you. He is leading you to glory. The appointment that Christ 
uh, was attending in Jerusalem was part of the plan of his journey to glory. And he says, your journey to glory is the very same journey. Whatever the cost, whatever the discomfort, the call is to follow him. Finally, the last priority is a little more difficult for us to deal with because it's so natural in the church to prioritize family and relationship. But in verses 59 through 62, we see two guys that Jesus deals with who's prioritizing, who are prioritizing people over him. The first, it happens to be his parents. This seems a noble request, obviously. The guy says, and he's like, hey, let me, I'll follow you, but let me go bury my dad. That sounds like a pretty noble request. And contextually, we don't get this because our culture is not like this. Contextually, it was, it was tied to the command. One of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. Right? And then there's a promise that goes with that and everything. And so, so contextually, there's this, this, this command to, to honor your father and mother. And, and here's this guy seemingly wanting to honor his father and mother. And, and, and truthfully, culturally, this was, this was tied to the idea that if you were going to honor your father and mother, you had to bury them. Like they had decided that it was dishonorable for somebody else to bury your parents, but that was not God's command. In fact, if this was God's command and his intent that to honor your parents, you had to bury them, Jesus wouldn't have said, no, let the dead bury the dead because he'd have commanded the guy to sin. What, 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 what's happening here is that this guy is, is devoting himself, he's prioritizing the traditions of family over the call of Christ. It has no place. In Christ's call to be devoted. I appreciate Cyril of Alexandria's thoughts on this. He lived in the uh, late 300s, early 400s. He was a church father that was, uh, uh, who was one of the main voices, leading voices at the Council of Ephesus. He writes, the fear of God is to, set even, to be set even above the reverence and love due to parents. Yes, we should honor our father and mother. But not at the expense of living and following Jesus our Lord. The point, though, I think is driven home when he tells this man what he should do instead. Let the dead bury the dead. You go preach the kingdom of God. The reality is this. There are dead people that can do the physical labors of this world. But only the living can proclaim the gospel that others might hear. They, only the living can live out worship so loudly that others will see the glory of God and turn and worship him. I remember an experience I had myself that I, I, I faced this choice. I was uh, in Nicaragua on a short-term mission trip. And I got news that a friend of our family, a really close friend, she had been uh, on the mission field with my Aunt Ruth, who was my uh, grandfather's sister. She had been on the mission field in Indonesia with my Aunt Ruth. Her, I mean, we called her Aunt Evelyn. They had come home. They were retired. They'd been living in Arkansas for some time. Got word while we were in Nicaragua that she had uh, died. And one of the leaders of the mission trip came to me and said, Seth, if you need to go home, we'll send you home. We'll, we'll pay, the, pay the, the balance of the, the, you know, the ticket that you gotta, you're going to have to get the new ticket. He said, we'll make sure you get there. And this passage rang in my head so loudly that I knew. How could I go home? A woman who had devoted her life to preaching the gospel in a place of darkness. 
It wouldn't be honoring her, and it definitely wouldn't be honoring my Lord. The best way I can memorialize the death of my aunt while at the same time as honoring my God was staying and doing the work. There is no family tradition. There is no family member. There is no relationship worth despising Christ. The second guy just wants to say goodbye to some friends, and Jesus doesn't allow it. It seems in contrast, really, because there's a, a story in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is enlisting Elisha to take his place. Elijah's obviously going to be going into heaven, and Elisha, he's going to need someone to follow along and continue the work. Elisha's the guy, and, and he says, hey, I want you to come do this work behind me. And Elisha says, let me go home and say goodbye to my parents. He goes home, he doesn't just say goodbye to his parents, he actually burns his plow, he kills his oxen, and he celebrates his going by feeding the oxen to the people that are there. And he's like, I'm going, see you later. I think the distinction here is that Jesus knows this guy's heart. This isn't a command to never say goodbye. Some people need to say goodbye. Rather, Jesus is highlighting the reality that if this man goes to say goodbye, he will never return. Because his priority is not following Jesus. His priority is the people that he thinks he'll be leaving behind. The truth is, had he followed Jesus, he likely would have gotten to see his family again and tell them all that he had seen happen in the presence of his Christ. Commenting on, on these words, J.C. Ryle wisely says this, those who look back like Lot's wife want to go back. Those who look back want to go back. There's something about the things behind us, the good old days, the, 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 the better times. The, the, we, we seem to forget all the trouble that was back there. And we want to get back to those days. Those who look back want to go back. Jesus will not share his throne with anyone. No, not with our dearest relatives. He must have all our heart or none. Again, we aren't to despise relationships. The gospel actually equips us for real relationship with an eternal family. But there is no relationship, no family member that takes precedence over the preeminence of living in obedience to the call of Christ to follow him at all costs, to worship him with our whole life, all our words, all our actions, all our desires, all our devotions. There is no greater priority that comes at a greater cost with the promise of a greater reward than following Jesus. None. So let me plead with you as you sit here at the brink of 2017, thinking about what life will be this year, let me plead with you to be a people who worship God in your whole life fully devoted, fully adoring, fully longing to see him made famous. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work on our behalf. An imperfect people, a people who are prejudiced because we're ignorant, a people who seek acceptance 
over outside of you, of people who think in some way we have to prove Jesus as acceptable, of people who, uh, who are more devoted to our comfort and who pursue our own selfish desires and our own, own ease and entertainment. Father, thank you for being gracious to a people who prioritize others over you. By your grace, lead us to worship, to worship you and you alone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.